Well, we're on the third Sunday of Advent. Christmas is a little more than a week away. Does everybody have all their Christmas shopping done? Yeah, I didn't think so. So we're, we're in the middle of the Christmas celebration and the season, and I'm sure there's been many Christmas parties attended already, and everybody's thinking about Christmas. But today what I want to do is to have a step back and think about the essence of, of Christmas. And we see this in the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, Steve just read the Magnificat. The Magnificat is the, that's the Latin term for magnify. And many of the Bible versions say, my soul magnifies the Lord. And this is her song of praise. And this song is in response to the previous verses. So if you back up in Luke chapter number one, and let's, uh, let's just look at beginning in um, verse number 26. Let's read a little bit here, if you will. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there would be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And so there in, the, in between this and then the Magnificat, there's a little section about her going to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And uh, when she heard the announcement of the angel, and then she went and visited Elizabeth, the result is that she worshipped and glorified and rejoiced in the Lord. And I am convinced that one of the reasons that, that the Lord had her or impelled her to go and visit her cousin Elizabeth was so that God could show her that His promises are true. For He said, nothing will be impossible with God. Now, many people in, in messages and in lessons and things like that have brought out the fact that Mary it lived in a shame-honor culture. Uh, that is that uh, you, you, everything you did was, was tied into your family and your community, and the way that they put pressure on you was through shame and, and honor. And having a child out of wedlock uh, was potential for having extreme shame and extreme 
being ostracized in, in the extreme. And it's remarkable that as, as we go through this passage, what you do not see about Mary is you do not see her worrying, do you? You don't see any, any evidence of any kind of worry. As a matter of fact, um, all you see is worship and, and rejoicing and glorifying the Lord. And this is most remarkable because uh, uh, most people believe that she was probably only about 13 or 14 years old at this time when she began worshiping the Lord. How many junior high boys and girls do you know that can magnify and, and rejoice in the Lord with the maturity that she did at this age? Nothing against junior high kids, by the way. I'm just saying you don't often see that, do you? My question, though, is this. I have two questions. Number one, what caused her to worship? And number two, what was the content of her worship? And these are the two questions I want to answer today. And I, and I want to think, I want you to think about this for just a minute. Are we called to worship God? We are. We're called to worship God. We're called to worship Him in all circumstances. And we're called to worship Him for the right reasons. I was talking to a friend of mine last week about worship and, and uh, just, I'm going to, I'm going to say a little bit more than I actually intended to say about this, but tremendous conversation. He doesn't live here. He lives in another uh, uh, place, and he is in process of trying to find another church. The reason he is, there's, there's a, several reasons, but the biggest one is that church, and it's a relatively large church, is, is failing to deal with sin that was pointed out to the pastoral staff. There's at least two families in the church where there are affairs going on between members of the families and the church doesn't do anything about it. And his observation, and that, that's not where I'm going with this, his observation was, I am so tired of going to a church where it's just business as usual. People walk in, you can tell that they're barely engaged in the sermon, and the sermon is just a little talk a little life tip. They sing a few songs. You can tell that they're not really thinking about what they're singing. And then they walk out. And he said, I want to go to a church where people walk in expecting to worship God. And they're engaged with their hearts, their voices, and they're all their being worshiping God. Where is the desire for people to truly worship God? How many, how many walk in on Sunday mornings so full of the Lord that you're just bursting to sing songs of worship to the Lord together? Oh, that the Lord would fill this building with true worshipers. God is the most exciting being on the planet, isn't He? There's no one more exciting than God. No one who does more impossible things than God. We... Um, um, I would do that. Uh, Julie Smith's husband. Sorry about that, Ted. Ted. And I said, I, by the way, I did greet him and said hello, Ted, this morning. So I know his name. I promise you. But, we're, but he was talking about some of the most magnificent things about the Christmas story, wasn't he? God moved the whole Roman Empire to get his son to Bethlehem. To be born in he moved the whole empire, and as Ted said, he could have cleared out a room, but instead he gave him a manger. What kind of a God do we serve? And as we get into our passage today, I think you're going to see even more. What kind of a God do we worship and serve? He is so glorious 
and so wonderful. My, my prayer is that God fills our church with people who want to worship Him, who desire to know Him with a better and greater understanding and understand His ways. And frankly, the passage that we studied last week in, in Malachi, we see that a lot of times God's not pleased with our insincere worship, is He? You remember what He said? He said, but you say, what weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or lame or sick, and you bring is, is your offering. Shall I accept that from your hands, says the Lord? And of course, remember that back in the Old Testament times, your, your worship was you brought a lamb, you brought an offering. And God said, I want the best lambs. I want the best offerings. Instead, they were bringing the injured and the maimed. And they were saying all these procedures and all these things that we're doing, they're weariness to us. And God said to them, your worship is insincere. And today in the church, so many times in, in churches across America, people spend their week rejoicing about that new job, about that new uh, material possession. They, they rejoice about being healed from sickness or, or they buy into the hyper grace movement that says, you know what? We have license. God's grace is abundant. And so I can live any way I want. I can give little regard for God. But, and then I'm going to walk in and attempt to worship him on a Sunday morning. And my heart is not really with him. It's just something I'm going to do. And God says, your worship I will not accept because you're not doing it with your heart. God wants wholehearted worship. The Lord may be saying to the modern church what He said to Israel and Malachi, I have no pleasure in you. I will not accept an offering from your hand. I don't know if He's saying that or not. It would seem maybe He is saying that. I don't know. But that wasn't Mary's heart, was it? Her heart was was genuine heart of worship. She brought genuine praise to God that rose above her circumstances. Here's this girl in poverty who is about to experience public shame and dishonor. And yet her eyes were on the Lord and her eyes were on him. And she understood the magnificent, magnificent, I'm really having trouble this morning. I'm sorry. Magnificent thing that God is about to do. And so she rose above her circumstances, rose above the opinion of everybody else and worshiped God. And I want to answer two questions. Number one, what does a worshiper look like? And number two, what's the content of the worship? And it's all right here in this beautiful passage. First of all, the character of a worshiper is someone who has faith. Who has faith. That's what's in their heart. I believe that we can see two examples of the faith, faith of Mary in, in this passage. In, first, in verse number 38, remember when, when the angel first came to her? Her response was this, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She didn't say, you know what? I'm, I'm worried about the opinion of everybody else. I'm worried. You know, the Old Testament says that I should be stoned if I have a child out of, or I'm pregnant out of wedlock. And, and, and she wasn't worried about any of that. She just said, Lord, this is your will. Be it as your word has said. She never wavers. She never doubts. The second thing that we see is verse number 46. Look at what she said. She starts out by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. She's told that she will be favored and that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, conceived of the Holy Spirit, and she never wavered in her understanding of the angel's words. She just believed. 
That is what God calls us to do today, isn't it? The first trait of somebody who is a worshiper of God is that they have faith in God Almighty. They don't resort to worldly methodologies. They don't result, resort to the world's thinking. They, they keep their thinking and, and their, um, their, their, their minds on the promises of God, and they have faith in God. Number two, though, we see humility. Look at, look at verse number 48. The first part says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. In other words, you know what she's saying? She's, she's saying, you know what, Lord, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. She was humble. And that's a trait of a worshiper. Why is humility a trait of a worshiper, by the way? Have you ever wondered that? Why is it so important that a worshiper is humble? The answer is this, and please listen. Pride always stands in the way of worship. Because pride is always competing with God. And most of us are so proud that we're concentrating on ourselves instead of on the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're happy, it's because we got what we want. If we're sad, it's because somebody has messed up our program or our, our plans. We don't worship all the time because we're not so we do not worship all the time because we're not so lost in God all the time. But rather we're consumed with ourselves. And pride will always compete with God, and pride will always eliminate worship. Worship is born out of a humble heart that says, God, I do not deserve the blessing of your salvation. God, I do not deserve a relationship with you. I do not deserve your goodness. Thank you so much for what you've done, Lord. My heart is enthralled with you. Have you ever burst out in spontaneous praise because of the goodness of God, because you know how undeserving you are? Have you ever been there? That's the heart of a humble worshiper. A humble person's greatest virtue is to see how much they do not deserve the grace of God. A true worshiper has faith and a true worshiper has humility. And thirdly, a true worshiper has scriptural knowledge. Scriptural knowledge. Mary knew the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, She had a working knowledge of it. The interesting thing I was telling somebody uh, this week on staff, they were, they were saying, why, you know, they're asking, do you, do you study to preach two weeks out? And I said, I can't do that. I have a one-track mind. I can't, I can't think. I can't be studying next week's sermon and preach this week's sermon. It just doesn't work that way for me. I'm, I'm a simple-minded person. But I was talking about the fact of the matter is, and I've, I've told Mike this before, at the beginning of the week, I never know what direction the text is going to take me. And this text really did a number on me this week because uh, one of the things about the Magnificat is that if you, tra- if you reverse translated it, if you could say that and put it in Hebrew, it would be just as poetic in Hebrew as it is in Greek. It's, it was written in Greek. It would be just as poetic. And as a matter of fact, basically the Magnificat is all kinds of Old Testament references. And, and I could preach about three sermons just showing all the references that she made in this, in this little hymn of praise. But her hymn of praise is very similar to the hymn of Hannah. Remember Hannah? In, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she prayed for a, uh, a young little boy. And she said, Lord, if you give me a boy, I'll dedicate him to the temple. And in chapter number 2, after the birth of her son, she, she gave a, a hymn of praise. 
Mary's hymn of praise is saturated with Old Testament thoughts and Old Testament phrases. Her mind was steeped in Scripture, and she had a working understanding of Scripture, and she had a working theology of God. And Scripture just poured out of her mouth. Here this young teenage girl knew the God of Scripture, that the God of Israel, she knew it in a deeply personal way. She knew His Word, she understood it, and she studied it. And she had laid a hold of the promises of its covenant. And those promises filled her thoughts and filled her heart. And so the character of a worshiper is one who has faith in God and is humble and knows Scripture. And worship is from the heart. And the only way that worship can come out of your heart is if God is in your heart. The only way that worship can come out of your heart is if your heart has been implanted with Scripture. We could, we could assemble the world's best music team for this church. And you could recruit the greatest, most entertaining pastor for this church. But your worship is only enhanced when you have filled your heart with Scripture during the week. The only person that can enhance your worship on a Sunday morning is you. And the only way you can do it is to fill your heart through the week. Dear brother, dear sister, let me ask you a question. This is so important. Are you filling your mind with Scripture during the week? Are you filling your mind by reading Scripture? By listening to it, I know I say this all the time, but it's so important that Scripture is on your heart and your mind. Do you listen to sermons regularly? Do you read books on Scripture? Are you deepening your understanding? Don't listen to sermons, by the way. They're just nothing more than a series of life tips. I know that sounds funny, but it's true. Listen to sermons that cause you to have awe and wonder at the God who saved you Stoop down to do that, and He is so amazing and mighty. And when you walk in on Sunday morning, the whole worship team could be off key, and it wouldn't matter to you. Okay, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. Because I know people from there listen to my sermons, but here we go. The church I came from, um, the, the organ was actually a half note, I guess, a half step. Um, low, I think it was. And sometimes the piano tuner would come in and tune the piano and not realize that the organ was tuned. And so when that dear little lady would play the organ and the piano, they were off key. But you know what? If your heart has been steeped in Scripture all week and you love God and there's this intensity about you, it doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter at all. And so... Mary was a true worshiper. And true worshipers, they, are, they have faith in God. They're humble. They realize they don't deserve His blessings. And their minds and hearts are steeped in, in Scripture. Well, what is she worshiping God for? What is she worshiping God for? Well, her grounds for worship are in the Magnificat. And the interesting thing about it now is that we're going to get into it. It's, it has four stanzas. And we're just going to cover the four stanzas, and we're going to see what she worshiped God for. Stanza number one, she worships God 
for her salvation. Verses 46 to 48 says this, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of a servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary's reaction to the news of the angels twofold. First, she praises God. My soul magnifies the Lord. That, that word is, is interesting. It, it has the idea to enlarge. To enlarge. My soul is, enlarges the Lord. She gave the Lord a large place in her heart. Why was that? The answer is the promise of the Lord performed in her enlarged her vision of Him. Her vision of him. Think about it. He told her, you're going to bear birth to the Messiah. And she said, well, how? Because I'm a virgin. And he goes on to explain, the, the angel explain how this is going to happen. And I am sure that because there had been no miracles and no word from the Lord in 400 years that, that she's in, in wondering about this whole thing. And God basically says, you know how I'm going to, I'm going to prove this? Go see your cousin Elizabeth, who they thought had been barren for years and years and years. The impossible thing has become possible because Elizabeth is going to bear a child. And of course, we know that's John the Baptist. And, and so her heart was magnifying, enlarging the Lord. And we can enlarge the Lord by telling people the wonderful works of God in our life. Praying for a child to be saved for years and years and years. And then when that child finally comes to the Lord, you enlarge the Lord, you magnify the Lord by telling everybody about it, don't you? You see, we have that, that, that ability, that responsibility. The second thing that she did there is she, she rejoiced in God. It's not rejoicing over some material blessing. Rather, it's over her Savior. She's rejoicing in her salvation. Look at verse number 48. For he has looked upon the humble estate of a servant. Now, the interesting Old Testament uh, picture in there is that word look. If you go through the Old Testament, almost every time the word, well, actually, I can say beyond a doubt, in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, any time the Bible says God looked and saw something, he's about ready to act upon what he saw. Uh, God looked and the hearts of men around the world were only evil continually. He brought a flood. But here it's talking about salvation and there's so many looks of salvation. Let me give you a couple examples. Number one. Um, when the children of Israel were in Egypt and they were enslaved and they were crying out to the Lord, the Bible says that God looked upon their, 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 their slavery and He saved them out of it, didn't He? And that's an Old Testament phrase. Another time we see when, when Hezekiah was king and the Assyrian army was surrounding Jerusalem and Sennacherib, the, the, the king, was, was telling them, we're going to destroy you. The Bible says that God looked. God looked and God acted upon what he saw. And so God here is looking at the plight of Mary. Another one, let me give you one more if I can do this. In, in 1 Samuel, I believe it's chapter number 9, uh, we, we, we see where the Philistines are, are um, um, really, they, they've taken the, the Israelites captive. And the Bible says there in 1 Samuel chapter 9 that God looked and saw what the Philistines are doing. And he, he raised up a man to deliver them. And God in Israel and looking down the corridors of time, have seen the, the bondage of man to sin. And he looked upon that, and he 
brought his son to be born of a virgin. He looked and he acts upon what he sees. Dear believer, you and I, before salvation, were under the bondage of sin. It totally had us. And God looked with favor and acted upon that. Praise the Lord. And by sending the Son, the Psalms talks about this, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that the people yet to be created, notice that yet to be created may praise the Lord. For He looked down from His holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem His praise when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. And do you know what? I said this last week. I'll say it again this week. You go to the the, fast forward to the book of Revelation and you see all through the, the book of Revelation many people from many different kingdoms and nationalities. And what are they doing? They're around the throne and they're praising God for His salvation because God looked and saw and acted and freed us from bondage. Praise be to God for our salvation. Stanza number two. Uh, she praised Him for the attributes of God. She praised Him for salvation. She praised Him for His attributes. Mary moves from her personal salvation to the Lord Himself and praises Him for these attributes. He's, she says, For He who has done mighty or has done great things for me. Holy is His name, and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Now, in this little phrase, she praises God for three things. Three things. Number one, His power. She praised Him. He who is mighty has done great things. She definitely has her Old Testament illusions in mind here. Did you know that many times when the might of the Lord is mentioned, it's in connection with salvation? Not only is looking connected with salvation, so is His might. For example, Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, the Mighty One who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love, and He will exult over you with loud singing. Get this in mind. You might be sitting here today saying, you know what? I am a nobody person. I'm just your average, ordinary, normal person that sits in the, in the seat here. And, and so I'm nothing special. Can I tell you, dear brother or sister, the Lord your God rejoices over your salvation with gladness. He, he will quiet you with His love. And He exalts over you with singing. That's the kind of God that we serve. He rejoices in His church. And He is mighty to save. Over and over we see the might of God in His salvation. Look, at, 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 look the exercise of God's power is a demonstration of His authority. And, and He's exalted. And He can do anything He wants. And one of the things that He wanted to do, if you're a believer, He wanted to save you. Oh, what a great God we serve. She, she not only prays Him for His power, she prays Him for His holiness. Look at what he says, verse number 49. She says, holy is his name. Now, don't miss this. This is, an, this is another detour that I ran into this week. Now, what do you think of when you think of God is holy? Normally, we think about his moral attributes, don't we? 
He's morally holy. He's set apart from sin. We're sinful. He's set apart from sinful creatures because he's totally separate from sin. But that's not the context. The context of the Magnificat is that he is holy. Don't miss this. The word means set apart, right? He's set apart from all other creatures in his power. In that the context? You can read it and see it. He's set apart. Although he's most certainly morally holy, he is set apart in that he displays the uniqueness of a sovereign rule of his people with displays of power. Who is like the Lord? And I'm going to go back to it. And I remembered his name, Ted. Okay. What Ted said, he said he moved the whole kingdom to get one person down to Bethlehem, right? What kind of a person can do that other than God alone? He is set apart from all of His creatures in His power. People, do not doubt the power of God to do marvelous wonders in your life. I think, I think one of the things that, that I constantly have to remind myself is the power of God. When I'm praying, you, you think about some of the people you pray for and you think, man, Lord... I don't know how on earth that person is going to change. You ever think that? I'm probably the only person in the world that thinks that. How on earth, Lord, are you going to change my son's heart, my daughter's heart? How are you going to change this person's heart? I I can't even see it. It's just impossible. He is holy in his ability to change things and people and circumstances. He's holy and set apart that way. And then number three, she praises Him for His mercy. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. In other words, it's forever. God's mercy is unmerited. God is in debt to no one. And His mercy is selective. It is only for those who fear Him. Isn't that what it says? His mercy is for those that fear Him. And it's unending. It goes on from generation to generation. I'm telling you, if if Mary is only 13 or 14 years old, as the uh, most scholars believe, this is a very mature understanding of the Lord, isn't it? She really was a special person in in her knowledge of God. Let's move on. Number three thing that she praised the Lord for, and this is my favorite. This is my absolute favorite. I wanted to preach a whole sermon just on this. The Messiah will reverse human values. When you look at verses 51 to 53, you see three giant reversals that are steeped in Old Testament illusions. The first one is moral, the second one is social, and the third one is economic. Let's look at the moral one, first of all. Moral reverses. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. The proud are those who feel no need for God. Do you know people that have no need for God? They're proud. But they're proud of their spiritual, material accomplishments, capabilities they're proud of. Um, and, and God loves reversing proud people's pride. Think back all the way back to Egypt. He was a proud person in Exodus. None other than Pharaoh, wasn't it? And Pharaoh was proud. And he challenged God. And Pharaoh was a God. And the Bible says in Deuteronomy, it's, it's seven times in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, 
he, God rehearses how that his arm saved them from Pharaoh. His arm, the strength of his arm. Another one, I already mentioned both of these before, but I'll mention this one again, Sennacherib. When, when Hezekiah was king and, and they surrounded, and if you remember that event, the, the Hezekiah was worried, and the Bible says that Isaiah said, don't worry about it, it's going to be taken care of, God's going to defeat them. And the Bible says the next morning they would wake up and 185,000 soldiers died, right? It goes on to talk about the fact that it was the, the arm of God. He did it with His arm, His might. And you see so many promises in the Old Testament. God says, is my arm short? Is my arm weak? And the answer is, no, God is not. He loves moral reversals. One day in Mary's future, and don't miss this, one day in Mary's future, the arm of God, once again, is going to do a moral reversal. But this time when he stretched his arm out, he stretched his other arm out. And nails went into those arms and into his feet and a spear into his side. And he may have looked very weak on that cross, but all the power of the kingdom was behind him. And three days later, he conquered death and rose again. And that's the most powerful, according to the Bible, that's the most powerful event that has ever happened. He defeated death and sin. And because of that, we will live forever with our Savior. The arm of the Lord is so powerful. Moral reversals. Another Old Testament illusion is social reversals. Look at verse number 52. He says this, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. This is talking about social. The, the, the mighty rulers on their thrones have no need of God, and so they oppress the lowly. And He will exalt those of humble estate. When I think of this, you want know to think of? I, I think the greatest example of this is the Joseph story. You're familiar with the Joseph story, right? I wish I could spend a lot of time on this, but but uh, follow me if you will. The story of Joseph is a picture of salvation for the believer. Joseph was sold into slavery, taken down to Egypt, right? We know that. He lived faithfully in Potiphar's house. He was lied about, and he was thrown into prison. And the Psalms, by the way, tell us, that he was also put in stocks, and, and he, it was a very painful thing initially that, that he, his arms were in stocks and, and chains. But then he showed himself faithful, and one day, one day, a prisoner in the dungeon, cave, whatever you want to call it, the lowly prisoner was lifted out of prison into Pharaoh's household with all the privileges that are involved. That was a massive, massive... Could you imagine if the president did that? Those that think he's crazy would say, see, he just took a prisoner and, and made him vice president. Joseph's social reversal is a picture of our spiritual reversal. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were enslaved 
to sin. We were following the course of this world according to the prince of power there. The Bible says we were um, um, children destined for wrath of God. And the Bible says, but God in His great mercy. And He lifted us up. And the Bible says that we are set at the right hand of God in Him, talking about Jesus Christ, so that for coming ages He might show the grandness, the greatness, the overwhelming mercies of God forever and ever and ever. What a tremendous social reversal that is. What a tremendous God we serve. And then let me give you another one. Economic reversals. We'd all like that one, wouldn't we? Verse number 53. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. The dual reality is spiritual and physical. Uh, Psalm 107, verse number 9 says, He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Can I say this? I don't know if I've said this yet in the sermon. God loves reversals. We see him all the way through scriptures. Think about Haman and Esther and Mordecai, that story. Think, think about how many times people's lives have been reversed. And you know what? It doesn't stop in the Old Testament. We were talking about the Sermon on the Mount, right? God, Jesus' first sermon First words out of his first sermon are all about reversals. If you, if you have your Bibles, look at Luke chapter 6. I'll show you what I'm talking about. In verse number 20, this is how he starts it. Tell me if this is not what Mary's talking about here. Luke 6.20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Is that a reversal? Blessed are you who are hungry, for now you shall, uh, for you shall be satisfied. Is that a reversal? Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And it goes on and on and on. Jesus Christ, His very first sermon, very first words of His very first sermon says, I love reversals. Why is that? The only way that's possible is because the greatest reversal of all times is that the King of Heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, listening to the adoring praise of all the angels, condescended to be born of a virgin. The shame of the, of the people thinking that He was born out of wedlock to a poor carpenter's family, lived life scorned by the religious leaders, mocked, challenged, didn't even own his own home, the Bible tells us. That's what he said. Falsely convicted of a crime that he did not commit and died on the cross. That is the greatest reversal of all times. But praise be to God, His reversal made ours possible because now we who were dead in trespasses and sins, I already said, are now seated at the right hand of God. We are, we are destined for all of eternity to show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us because Jesus Christ willingly left the, 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 the throne of heaven to come down and save us. What a great reversal. Well, I'm just going to briefly mention stanza number four. She also says that God's faithful. God's faithful. 
He has helped the servant in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. Mary knew that for all of eternity, she and all the redeemed Israel would benefit from the mercy of God because he's faithful. I want to close by asking you this question. Are you a worshiper? A worshiper has, has faith in God and is humble in those scripture. That is the character of one who worships God. Dear believer, do you know Scripture? Is Scripture on your lips? Do you read and meditate about the goodness of God? He is the God who deserves praise for our salvation, for His eternal power and holiness and mercy. He deserves worship for the reversals of the past and the greatest reversals of all time that God became flesh. And he deserves worship and praise and faithfulness. And as I was writing that this week, I couldn't help but to think about this. Heart the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by, born that man may no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory be to the newborn king. Oh, my heart was so full this week of the glories of God. Lord, I pray that you will fill our hearts with your glory, awe and wonder and praise. Lord, I, I pray that you will be, become so bright in our mind's eye that the, 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 the things of this earth, as the hymn says, will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and praise. I ask, Lord, that, that we will be worshipers because we have, we have faith in you and we, we know Scripture, Lord, and, and we're humble. We understand that we don't deserve it. And Lord, we pray that, that we will just get a taste of what it's going to be like in the glory of heaven knowing You for all of eternity, seeing You not only with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes, clearer than we ever had before. You deserve more glory than we could ever give You for all of eternity. Make us better worshipers of You in Christ's name. Amen.